Hey, Don. Hello, Zach. This week, I want to revisit a conversation that we had about a month and a half ago or so. We looked at a website called nextbigwhat.com, and the author had kind of provided 40 concepts that will enrich your knowledge of the world. And we sort of covered concepts 1 through 12. And I just kind of wanted to cover 12 through 24 or so here today. The first concept is called Seminal Weiss Reflex. People tend to reject evidence that doesn't fit the established worldview. Named for Ignaz Semenowis, a surgeon who, before the discovery of germs, claimed washing hands could prevent patient infections. He was ridiculed and locked away in a mental asylum. And Don, uh, just curious, what do you think about this particular concept? This story is a really interesting one. I've read about it before, about the surgeon and uh the overall body of doctors were totally opposed to this because it was awful washing hands with acid and so forth, but would have led to the saving of thousands and thousands of lives, but they didn't want it there because they want to stick with what they're doing because it was mostly uh, more convenient. In general, it reminds me of the psychology concept of confirmation bias. We look for information that confirms our already existing biases. And it is no surprise. I think we all want to think we're right and pat ourselves on the back and say, I told you so. I knew I was right. And this fits right in that, uh, right in that wheelhouse. I realize that in hindsight, we have learned that washing your hands, especially if you're doing things like surgery or, or medical care, is important. At the same time, I wonder if this is a very convenient example in the, in the sense that like, hey, during those times, though, this was a very radical idea. And all the time, people are bringing up radical ideas. I don't know, like, like if you follow this principle, does that mean that you need to accept every radical idea that gets proven to be correct? And I get that nowadays, washing your hands is one of the most basic things we can do to try to keep each other healthy and stuff like that. But I don't know. I mean, like, there's all those like weird home remedies. I mean, I believe President Trump at one point had even suggested we drink uh, bleach or something like that to try to uh, help out with COVID. We're inject just bleach. inject the bleach. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Thank be good. you. But I mean, my point is like, if if every time we heard something that seemed really radical and we all just rush out to do it, that seems like a bad idea. And therefore, I'm not sure if this is the great piece of advice here. I guess so, but this was fairly proven there. I think it's in Atul Gawanda's book, Better, and it is very detailed. And he did the research and he found it was really the case. I mean, that's the difference between patented things we do, not just washing our hands, but also drinking water and um, not smoking. These things are inconvenient truths, but they're well proven and well known that those things list, uh, those things improve our health. So it's a little bit, put your head in the sand and ignore it if you want to do this. Right. It comes down to people's worldview of things. And there's a big theme in a lot of these different concepts coming up today where it's kind of like, what do you already believe or think about the world? And a lot of times, you know, can you find things that either fit within your own narrative or don't fit within your narrative? And I guess at one point, a lot of people didn't think that washing your hands was important. And therefore, I guess maybe people just rejected it instead of maybe looking at results. But at the same time, as we know with science, you need lots and lots of replication in order to figure that out. And so I just wondered if this was kind of a cherry picked example to maybe just sort of prove like, oh, look how dumb people are. But at the same time, like there's something about like kind of being a little bit slow and being a little bit cautious to make sure that you are getting the correct facts, don't you think? 
I guess so. It's an interesting thing to think about right now because things have moved so quickly over the last year or two as the uh, this new COVID thing came up and people had to figure out quickly what the best practice was. And science doesn't work quickly, but it was kind of forced into happening. And as we now see, there are many people that are reticent to follow the new advice of wearing a mask, of getting a vaccine, of doing the things we need to do to prevent the spread of this uh, deadly virus. I was thinking a lot about diet fads. And again, back in the 80s, right? Eat fat free. And everybody rushed to do that while consuming high sugared fat free items, right? And, and that was just something that we all just <laughs> went to. Remember in the early aughts, the Atkins diet just kind of exploded. And all of a sudden, like nobody was eating pasta or high carbs anymore for a little bit. And everybody was just like sucking on bacon and stuff like that. And just how, like, I don't know, just we all rushed to that. And then, you know, I don't know if any of it was actually proven to work. Yeah, I guess so. Um, you are uh, on the forefront of the Atkins diet now. It is, again, carbs are bad, and you are a smoke meat-smoking person. So this would be right in your radar. You should just smoke meats every day, and uh, what could go wrong? Right. We'll just ignore all the carcinogens that you're consuming. <laughs> it must. Those are like vitamins. <laughs> Next principle is called Planck's Principle. And it says, science progresses one funeral at a time. Scientists, being human, don't easily change their views. So science advances not when scientists win or lose arguments, but when they die, so that younger scientists with more refined views can take their place. What would you think about that one? I, I thought that was interesting because I think that scientists are dying at a slower rate now. And they hang out longer and longer and can defend their, uh, their theses for more and more time and shake their fist at the new up-and-coming generation. Um, it is not as if like everybody is out at 50. Now they're still around. They're, uh, they're, they have that glorious spot of the tenured college professor that comes to their office for two hours a week and still has a claim and an office. And they can defend what they think they are the best things. And it doesn't evolve quite as quickly as it is. However, I think the ch major changes are much smaller. And this isn't... Uh, the things like Galileo and so forth and the major theories, it's more like refined, smaller things. It did make me think about kind of like, I guess, academic log jam in terms of you've got so many academics that are publishing all the time. One of the things I, I've kind of come to learn is that like, there's some very prestigious journals that you want to be published in so that you're read by everybody. And it seems like it's an absolute fight both politically and scientifically, to get yourself published in those journals, I could see where there's sort of an old guard that probably kind of, you know, are the gatekeepers, right, of who gets to be in these journals. And I'm sure they are trying to pick the most relevant science, but I got to assume reputation and age and probably networking comes into play in that stuff. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, for sure. And who's editing this has a tremendous impact in what schools or what, uh, where these people did their research probably plays a big fact role as well. I don't think I know enough about this to really speak in a manner where I'm confident, but I'm sure that there is something there. You're right. We need to bring on some sort of like a, a scientist uh, under the age of 40 and, and have them just like open it up, right? Let me know how many times they've been, uh, you know, kept at the back of the line because of their age or something like that. And maybe they would say it doesn't exist. But it seems like a natural thing that would happen. I mean, again, there's so much out there. I mean, if anything, I thought about this principle and thought of it more about social change in that wouldn't you say that 
racism, sexism, and some of the worst isms in our society go away when the older generation just dies because a lot of those horrific ideas just die with them. Yeah, or they lose their vigor. Okay, that's that's probably a better way to say it. It's not like it always totally just goes away, but a lot of the times you're just like, yeah, like the only way you can do it is to just get rid of these horrific ideas and that means death. And I wonder if it's actually a better way to explain social change. Yeah, absolutely. As uh, I've, I've had some family members that were racist and they have passed on and the new generation is somewhat less so and we're just kind of evolving in hopefully a better direction. The uh, wind, the road of justice is long and slow, but winds towards uh, freedom or righteousness, something like that. That's the quote. Does the Supreme Court sit as the ultimate example of this principle of the idea of like, yeah, when they die, they, they finally leave and you can get new ideas there. Now, you might still not like the ideas that are getting put there, but I mean, talk about the old guard that kind of holds on to things. Yeah, well, that's progressively and slowly as you had more pe- as one person dies and other persons replaced and it's more shaped by public opinion than I think we like to think. And it is just a slow, it's a slow metamorphosis. So I, I it's hard to see in a, because how are we to judge this in our lifetime? It's the same thing. And our perspective changes as we get older. Yeah, no, that's true. I, I, that is true. And people can change. I think that's one thing that maybe this principle, maybe discounts a little bit is I'm sure scientists who are doing real science are, are open to data and open to changing their opinion if they can if it can be proven and that's also the case with humans as well yeah I think they stick with their beliefs for a little longer than they should but they probably could be open to some things next principle bias against null results and it says Studies that find something surprising are more interesting than studies that don't. So they're more likely to be published. This creates the impression the world is more surprising than it actually is. Yeah, the thing is that many of these studies that are truly incredible oftentimes are poorly replicated or not replicated well at all. Everybody wanted to hear that drinking red wine was good for your health. And it gave everybody a reason to drink red wine. Then I think it, another study came out says drinking any alcohol. Like, oh, well, I could absolutely need a reason to drink more alcohol. That's a great idea. And all the studies have come out recently in the last five years saying, no, it's actually a bad idea to drink alcohol at all, ever. And yet <laughs> we are, those didn't get nearly as much press because that wasn't the surprising, exciting thing. Can you think of a better study to come out than says, turns out bacon double cheeseburgers and beer are the best things for your health wow this would be great you're 100 correct so many things that are probably already understood probably continue to be understood right i was i was in fact i was thinking like should we have a null result hall of fame like hey we threw a pig out of a window and it still didn't fly right i guess gravity is still there or the sun came up again you know boring things snow still melting at 33 degrees like it's not very exciting i remember i had a professor in college who talked about their dissertation and how like really distraught and bummed out they were when after years of research basically they got the null you know they said they still had a dissertation they still had a paper they still had research it just wasn't very exciting when something that you thought might be like changing something wasn't changing anything and it was like no nothing happened and 
I guess like in some ways, maybe we forget that like just reproving what we already know is maybe not the end of the world. It's just not very sexy. <laughs> yeah, but does need to be done, right? Because we acquire new knowledge all the time. Don't we have to double check that that's still the case? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, hey, everybody, like we still need oxygen to breathe and trees pump out oxygen. So maybe we shouldn't cut them down. I mean, that seems like kind of a, like a, a solid blocking and tackling kind of science that we could be reminding people of. Yeah, I, there should be a list of like top 10 things that are known and recertified and are still important. I, I thought maybe if we could have a Hall of Fame of null results and remind people, maybe we'll just calm everybody down. I mean, again, as you were saying, like, oh my gosh, like red wine, like 1% of people that drank it uh, found some health benefits, right? Like, well, I don't know. Or hey, everybody, like people who abstain from alcohol also had all of these benefits. I, I think maybe in a way, everybody's waiting for more silver bullets instead of just going to bed at a regular time, getting up, moving, getting some exercise. Those are all boring, but I, I do think still important to remind people about. In a sense, though, they're surprising. Tom Brady doesn't eat ice cream. He never had, doesn't eat tomatoes. Goes to bed at eight o'clock every night. <laughs> those were surprising and those grabbed headlines. They were surprising because somebody actually was living a healthy lifestyle. Wasn't that it? Eats a <laughs> lot. I mean, seriously, oh my God, he eats a bowl of broccoli every day. And oh my God, he drinks a lot of water to stay hydrated. Like, I mean, you think about a lot of his TB12 method stuff. And it was just really kind of just common sense for, for being a healthy human being. Sleep a lot, drink a lot of water, eat a lot of vegetables, try to stay away from like overly processed salty foods. And yet people seem stunned by this. Oh, that's healthy? Yeah, but it, it was surprising. Maybe it's surprising because the picture that goes along with him of him looking young and uh, playing young and his spouse looking attractive. And there you go. Right. And also he did grow more hair every year, which seems strange. <laughs> strange to you and I, for sure. I don't know. Again, I think I'm always a believer that like life is a seven, right? We've talked about this before. It's never that amazing and it's never that bad. And therefore, if we're always looking for some new thing that's going to make life a 10, I think that sometimes detract from just like keep working at the seven level. And I think you're going to be amazed at the kind of results you see. Uh, I disagree. I believe in the adaption level phenomenon is that things get better and you adapt to it and just expect that to be your normal. I think that we are, well, at least I am living a fantastic life and things are great. That doesn't mean I'm constantly jubilant. It just means that I realize things are very good. Everybody in my household is healthy and thriving and doing well. And I am happy with my job. Although it's not always exciting and fun, it is good and it's consistent and I find it enjoyable most of the time, but I just feel normal. I don't think I feel day to day, but I know it can get worse. The Michigan right. State football coach once said like it can, he was losing a million games and he had kids, players going to prison all the time. And he was like, it can always get worse. I was like, oh yeah, I can. Like it, the depths of sorrow and horror are so much more than you or I are experiencing. So I don't think we're properly valuing the downside. That's exactly it. Like you're living a seven, like life's great. I mean, I just think it's not just an Instagram photo where everybody's got confetti in the air and they're smiling and they're just pointing with the number one finger and look at us. Sometimes just everybody being content, going to bed at a decent hour and getting up and, you know, drinking some water is okay. 
I don't think we're living a seven. If we're if a one is begging for change on the street corner in India, is suffering from diseases and being blind, maybe being blinded by a relative so they could beg better. If that's a one, then we're doing better than a seven. In fact, that would be a data sort of uh, phenomenon you're talking about, which is the next one. And the next concept is called p-hacking. And it says, if you torture the data for long enough, it'll confess to anything. Academics get around the bias against null results by performing many statistical tests on data until a significant result is found, then recording only this. P-hacking is largely why we have another issue called replication crisis. And that is a large proportion of scientific findings have been found to be impossible to replicate, with successive tests often yielding widely different results. Too many studies are bunked to take them at any face value. And Don, we'll just kind of talk about these at the same time. P-hacking, the replication crisis, what'd you think? I've never had a statistics class, but I do know that um, they do all sorts of crazy stuff with some data to get to find real results. And if you torture the data, you'll find enough results, as the thing said. Brings me back to the old saying, there's lies, damn lies, and statistics. Yes. In fact, I just kind of wrote down like, P-hacking, isn't this why people hate academics or not everybody, but just there's a certain skepticism towards academics. So those people that work on college campuses, right? We call them the elites or the eggheads because they come up with their model or they come up with their finding. And then they tell people like, this is what you should be doing. Cause once again, you're doing it wrong and nobody understands their data or where they got it from or the study that they're coming up with. And then they don't explain it very well. And then somebody else who does kind of understand what they're doing comes up and then discredits them, right? And now you've got two people fighting over data that nobody understands. And then (laughs) eventually they go to the lower common denominator, which is they just say that you're politically biased. And then they get on cable news and then they try to discredit that person and they're either liberal or conservative study. And then everybody just starts like fighting and arguing and nobody even can understand any of it. Yes. That's all I could think about is I just thought like, isn't that where we've gone wrong is if we can't get statistics that make any sense to people, is that an academic issue that they're not doing a good enough job explaining why something is true? I I don't think statistics are understood understood by most people. They're understood in a certain sense. Like, okay, we have a great baseball batter and he's hitting 350. Like, okay, that means 0.35 time, 35% of the time he gets on the plate, he's going to get a hit. Great. Okay. They get that. But then all the other stuff is so much tied to everything else. What's correlated with high test scores? Well, it's going to a good school. It's also having wealthy parents. It's also having highly educated parents. Like it's, it's all tied together. And I don't think the correlation equals causation is something that people really understand or think about that much. Well, they then start talking about things like with a 75% confidence level, we can say this, right? Now, nobody has any idea what any of that means. Or then all of a sudden they say, well, on a standard bell curve, then someone says, well, like, didn't three years ago, somebody write a book saying the bell curve doesn't work anymore. And nobody even knows if we can trust the bell curve anymore. Yeah, this is out of my depth, but I believe you're correct. We really need an academic to come on and complain about the older academics and then also talk about this whole p-hacking phenomenon, I think. (laughs) I do know an under 40 academic who would be unwilling to come on and do that. (laughs) Oh, good. Well, it's funny because I I thought about p-hacking again when 
Remember when we invaded Iraq in the early aughts, right? And basically, the Bush administration essentially had their narrative that we needed to go into Iraq, and therefore they just kind of found the data that they needed to prove why we needed to invade. And then all of it basically was proven that it didn't actually exist. Yeah, they made a big presentation. Probably the dark spot in our now departed Colin Powell's life was going to the UN and presenting all these um, so-called truths that have, uh, that were ultimately totally untrue. Well, and that to me is where it's the most dangerous, right? When you start bringing up data that, that doesn't even exist, and this is more social science data, but to me, it just seems like, yeah, like this is a major problem when people can get anything out of data if they look harder or squeeze it hard enough, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, huge problem. Well, what did you think about the replication crisis part? Because I was thinking... Yeah, like if I was a scientist, I think I'd want to be doing my own experiments and not just like redoing your experiments. And yet it does seem really important that we can make sure that we can do the same thing over and over again, right? Well, and this has two problems. One is the initial finding, like we talked about earlier, that red wine makes you healthier. And people like jumped on that and were all over it. And it was wrong. So that's one problem because it needs replication and they should have waited until after replication to publish it, but they didn't. And because the publishing of the study itself is what creates the need for the replication, which finds it's invalid. So it gives people erroneous initial response reports. The second problem is the time aspect. It just says you need time to think about this and that's the way science works. And so any cutting edge research needs to be proven and reproven and reproven and reproven which requires lots of time, which is not what the public's willing to give them. They wanna know if red wine is good right now. They wanna know, I've read that eggs are good for you or bad for you in five different places in five different ways. I'm eating eggs today. Is that good or bad? Tell me. Well, we have to replicate, we have to check it. Like, oh no, it, it just stretches out things forever. The, what people really want is like a firm, solid answer. And when my kids ask me something that I'm like, well, that's, that's, there is no real hundred percent answer for that. They're like, no, no, you got to have the answer. Like, no, I, I don't have all the answers. There is no hundred percent truth on this issue. And the same thing is true with students in our classes. We want these guaranteed solid truths, but they're just not out there because it has to be replicated over and over again. And then it just gets foggier at times. Well, and that's, I guess, the issue is it sounds like nobody is replicating it. Or are people even reporting when something can't be replicated? I mean, I almost feel like you should be doing the egg study if you're eating eggs today. Or can we give you some, some basic pointers about how to run the study? Or should we just have a YouTube channel devoted to people replicating other people's experiments just so that we can make sure that they're either living up to what they claim? Because my bigger concern is if we have this crisis where nobody can replicate each other's work, then does that mean that every scientist basically knows that everybody's doing unreplicable work and they don't care because they're too busy doing their own thing that nobody else can replicate? When I was in the second grade, all we did between myself and my friends was just brag and lie about all the video games we'd beaten. We never once asked for anybody to replicate what they had claimed they had you know, done, right? But we were too busy making up our own lies about what we had beaten and stuff like that. We didn't care that nobody could replicate anything. Is that what scientists are doing? I don't think they have the uh, same intent of the lies. I think the world is just far more complicated than we give it credit for. And whether or not you just eat eggs are good for you might be a just good for you thing, you know, or good for me. Are eggs good for me? Well, I'm a 
person that is for the most part, pretty healthy, works out every day. And is it good for me? Yeah, maybe it's good for me, but it was also be good for another person that's 45 that doesn't work out every day or is 25 and works out like the answer is probably far more complicated. And we can't have somebody just researching us all the time unless we're Tom Brady. And then we have a, uh, a probably a statistician and a chef at our fingertips that can respond to us and work what's best for us by measuring all the micro uh, changes in our body as a result of it. LeBron does supposedly spends a million dollars a year on this. Well, he knows probably what's good for LeBron, but he can't tell you what's good for everybody else. And I, I guess the other thing too, I was just sort of thinking about is science dollars are scarce. There's only so much science research money that's out there to be chased for new projects. And I guess I just wonder if the National Institute of Science there, which funds a lot of these projects, I'm sure they're always looking at proposals to fund new studies. Are they supplying enough money for replications, right? I mean, I'm sure these things cost a lot of money just to replicate. Maybe that's really the issue that we need to have is more people getting funded just to replicate other people's work. No, they're not getting enough money. We need more basic science research. And basic science research is never valued enough. And that's what brings our major scientific discovery comes from the basic dollars going into basic science. And you and I know tons of stories of uh, how Apple stole the mouse from, I think it was HP that had a giant lab where they just Xerox. developed all, Xerox. Just developed, they just threw money at cool ideas. And then that's where Apple got their mouse and developed all this other stuff. I mean, it's just throwing money at problems and trying to figure out answers to things. And that's where our money needs to go. And more even basic research, the stuff that led to lasers and so many other things were just government dollars thrown at basic research. And that's something we really, really should be doing. And we're not. Our funding for basic science is falling. China's is growing. Do you think the baking soda and vinegar reaction is the most replicated experiment ever? Oh, absolutely. It is well, well confirmed. The baking soda mixed with vinegar equals a very, very messy volcano. Would that go into our null hypothesis or null um, science uh, hall of fame? Just still doing it. That that reaction (laughs) still works. Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, Next one, luxury beliefs. And it says cultural elites often adopt views that signal status for them, but hurt the less fortunate. What do you think about this one? This is a hard one to unpack. I'm struggling. What do you have here? I agree. I was, I was thinking a lot about this, but I guess that the best way I could think about luxury beliefs is that the people at the top of our society can sometimes appear concerned about an issue that ultimately, whatever their concerns are or their desire to want to help doesn't really seem to want to help anything. And I just sort of was thinking more about hypocrisy. I was thinking about your boy Leonardo DiCaprio and Al Gore and their concerns about the environment or global warming. And the fact that like, yeah, they still ultimately like fly around in private jets and consume lots of products. And therefore, is their, you know, adopted view actually helping people down below when we know that climate change is going to hurt the poorest around the world the most? I think it's almost the opposite of that is that they, those type of people use the imagery of the poor people losing their homes to justify their movement while they fly around in private jets, but they show the videos of these people losing their houses and losing their villages. And it's almost like horror porn. 
That's true. But it, it, it kind of bolsters their appearance. I, I was also just thinking about, you know, people that want to donate their money and get behind an international cause to send money to Africa or something like that. And yet they don't want to give any money to the local poor in their own community and stuff like that. Right. Once again, like the, the, their views seem almost juxtaposed to a way that could actually help people in their local area, which I think is just sort of interesting. Yeah, that would be a good example. Or what about just like, you know, college alumni donations, right? People pumping more and more money into the University of Michigan business school to help the wealthy elite sort of uh, get degrees and, and get their names on doors and sides of the roof or something like that. But instead, not actually helping the poor college kid that's racking up a ton of debt to actually go there, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, but they appear to be as concerned about those people. But the best way to help them isn't to have them have a nicer building it's to give them money for tuition. Right. That's all. I just think that, you know, philanthropy is a, a weird thing in that obviously it's people's money. They can decide to do whatever they want with it. But I do sometimes wonder how much of it is just really poorly given away and not actually having much of an effect. It reminds me of uh, the book Dark Star Safari by Paul Thoreau, who traveled kind of north to south of the African continent. And he comes across this kind of NGO of of their whole goal was to basically make sure that small children in villages were getting meals and stuff like that. And so they would give food to these small kids and then they would get really upset when they found the kids' parents were taking the food and eating it because they were just as hungry, but they were so righteous and anger that these angry that these parents would take the food, not really understanding sort of their misguided attempts at trying to help and not really trying to see the bigger problem. So they'd keep the parents at bay and do a wet feeding of the children until their funding ran out. Then they just leave and there'd be no more feedings. I remember that section of the book. That was a really good book. Great book. I mean, same idea of, you know, when you and I give clothes away to Goodwill or something like that, and then often Goodwill will bail up all these clothes and then take them to a developing nation to, to give away clothes. Okay. On one hand, you say, that's great. Look at that. But on another hand, we're also now taking away a really easy industry to, to start, which is textiles and, and clothing. And we're now almost like flooding the local market with free clothes instead of maybe allowing the market to develop with uh, a t-shirt factory that could maybe provide jobs for people. All true. Did I tell you I read an article about what the people that sort these clothes in India? No. And they said... They were asking what they think about all these clothes coming from America. And they said, well, a lot of them are really clean and new. We think in America, they have so much money, they only wear things once and they throw it away. <laughs> in some ways, that's not exactly inaccurate. And then the other one was that they, they couldn't figure out how these people were so big. How, how, how could this be <laughs> that these people exist that are this large? We have a friend that uh, got married and they made the wedding clothes for her husband, who's about 6'6". And when the mother took the uh, measurements, the tailor, the tailor said, there are no people this big. <laughs> well, you know, every year you see some news story of a developing nation that's wearing T-shirts of the Super Bowl loser, right? Like yeah. right now, I got to assume there's Bengals and Rams gear that's all being made that says Super Bowl champions, right? And we all know one of these teams is not going to win. And it just, to me, seems like a very just sort of interesting uh, disconnect that we have. And therefore, it's hard for me to totally understand luxury beliefs, but I think there is something there about how we think we're helping or the stances we want to take to feel like we're on the right side of things. And yet how ultimately, while we pick this side, we're actually maybe hurting 
those who we want to benefit, if that makes sense. Yeah. Next concept, vulvarism. And it says, instead of assessing what a debate opponent has said on its own merits, we assume they're wrong and then try to retroactively justify our assumptions, usually by appealing to the person's character or motives. What do you think about that one? The last line there, it says, explains 99% of all Twitter debates. Uh, this is absolutely true. We, uh, we don't listen. And we've talked about this on this podcast before. We are not good as listening as humans, as Americans, as people. And if we listen, then we can have a conversation. We don't want to listen. We want to say, all right, I'm going to stick with my beliefs no matter what. And I'm just going to listen enough so I know what you're saying so I can disprove it. And if you argue with somebody that really knows the, the idea well, the, the arguments against or the counter arguments are already baked in. So like, okay, you're going to go with this thing, then I'm going to go with this thing. Then, okay, you're going to make, take this tactic, I'm going to take this tactic. And they're not really listening or engaging. They're just volleying back and forth. As a football coach would say like, okay, well, you're going to run up the middle. This is the set defense for running up the middle. You're going to go around the side. Okay, we're going to do this because that's set. They're just doing prepackaged things. They're not actually listening and having a conversation. And that's where we are with most of the time. This is something I try off all the time to do is really listen to what people are saying and engage with them. But it's hard. Well, it's just that whole idea of, you know, what are you for? So I can just start to get to be against it, right? I, even, I don't even want to con consider the merits of it. It, it reminds me again of neither political party can ever just say like, yeah, that's a pretty decent policy that, they're, that they've got here. Yeah, we agree with them here. Instead, it just seems like you always just had to tear down everything. And that's the part that I just always think is so unhealthy is we can never just say that like the middle is actually a lot in common. And we just disagree about these three or four things, but we have to just, everything has to be a fight. And it just seems exhausting. And also just to the point where I think it's kind of mind numbing and disingenuous to make everybody think that somebody on the other side is just totally wrong about everything. No, you're absolutely right. And uh, the engaging and truly listening is the hardest part. I kind of wonder if maybe this was the most powerful of the concepts that, that, that we're going to talk about today. And I think it's the one that maybe is the most relevant one in school in some ways is just, hey, can you avoid bulverism? Can you acknowledge the things you liked from what somebody said before you then begin your disagreements? And really take them in. But that's accepting defeat, and our society is against that. You can't start your argument by accepting defeat, but that's exactly what we should probably do is to really listen to the person, validate what they said, take it in, and then say, but have you thought about that way? I think in today's interactions between people, especially on social media and especially on TV, that response is going to be, oh, okay, I'm right. Let's move on to the next point. If anything, I've always thought it is lame when you watch political debates and they always ask the question, say one nice thing about the person um, that you're standing next to, right? And they always just say, well, they're a good family man. And they never will just give them any credit for any policy or anything they did. I mean, can't they at least be like, look like you pardoned a great turkey last year or something like that. It's always just say something nice about their family and then we're moving on. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's the only thing I can get away with and not have capitulated, which is what it would be seen as if you initially just gave that response. Well, and this next one's kind of connected to that, but it's called scout mindset. 
And it says, we tend to approach discourse with a soldier mindset, an intention to defend our own beliefs and defeat opponents. A more useful approach is to adopt a scout mindset, an intention to explore and gather information. Well, the previous one is analyzing what we do. And then this new scout man site mindset is to what we should do, which is to really try to investigate what people are arguing. And I'm not sure how often I implement this, but I also don't know how many times I'm arguing with people about entrenched issues that are have a hard partisan view. Do you think there's just something evolutionary about a scout mindset versus sort of a soldier mindset and that maybe there's just something within the human brain that makes us have that soldier mindset. Was that to maybe protect the tribe or to keep the tribe to follow you or to make sure that everybody was kind of hardened together to survive together? It does seem like people, you know, have their view and they want to protect it no matter what, instead of go out and kind of learn with an open mind and open heart. Absolutely. We don't do that. Most people don't know anything about 99.9% of anything. And therefore, wouldn't you say, you know what? I don't know anything about this topic. I need to listen. I need to watch. I need to learn. But instead, it just seems like everybody's an expert on everything, even though they don't know anything. Well, we know some things, right? Don't we know some things? Well, we know what we experience, right? And as we've talked about this kind of principle before, right? We we kind of just use our life experiences to then ram through whatever hole we're being asked to kind of consider, even though we never kind of back up and say, you know what, I don't really know anything about this topic. Like right now, I, I mean, I think America, we're talking about Iran again, and yet everybody on TV seems to know a lot about Iran, but do they really know anything about Iran uh, and how policy is best shaped when it comes to the entire world? nuclear issues. And therefore, I don't know, it just seems like maybe everybody should just back up and say, you know what, let me let the experts just kind of weed through this and bring this down. But is this also that issue with data? We can't understand any data and therefore it makes us really distrustful of experts. Yeah. Well, and I think you come back to the stem of it is that we know our experiences and that's what doesn't work about academics is academics go to talk to a group of people and they say, well, this is my expert area and I can talk about this. And even in their expert area, they're like, well, there's a 99% chance that this is the way it works and that uh, getting a vaccination is good. But they also acknowledge that there are vagaries, but then they're not experts in everything. So if you ask about something else, that's not directly related to that. They say you're a vaccine max expert and you ask them about masks. They're like, well, it's not really my area. I can't really speak on that. But somebody that doesn't know anything would speak on that and argue everything. So you either are speaking from your experience, which is really poorly grounded, probably, and very limited, or you're speaking from expertise, which is also really limited and doesn't carry much breadth. And that's where you can then run right to bulverism again and say, ah, ha, ha, you said you were an expert about this, but you said you're not an expert about that. And therefore, are you a flip-flopper? Are you a liar, right? And now all of a sudden, I've just assassinated your character as a human and called you wishy-washy because you're not sure about something. And then there's lots of doubt and now you can't be listening to anything. Well, that comes back to what we were saying earlier is that every, people want somebody to have all the answers. And when you say you don't have all the answers, then it's very, um, the, the, the listener wants to have somebody that has all the answers and knows everything. 
you can't go up on a presidential debate and say like, well, I don't know, we'll have to figure this out. We'll have to talk to some people that know more about this and get it like, no, that's not what they want. People want to vote for a person that has all the answers or listen to a person that has all the answers or learn from somebody that has all the answers, but nobody has all the answers. And those that say they have all the answers really don't. It's interesting. I, I just, I like the idea, the scout mindset of go out to maybe learn and not judge right away. And at the same time, that seems really difficult for anybody to do. And again, that's why I just wonder if there's something inherent in us that uh, makes us have that soldier mindset. Well, how often do you come across people that are saying bold beliefs that you totally don't agree with? And do you hear them out? I'd like to think that I'm somebody that will hear out anybody, but that's just because I think in general, people's opinions are interesting, even if they're things I don't agree with. How often does somebody come up to you and say, Zach, let me tell you about affirmative action? No, that's true. And probably because in some like implicit ways, I probably surround myself already with people that sort of see the world like I do. So it's just rare to even come up uh, to people that, that just sort of disagree. And I would assume a lot of people have that problem. Yeah, I just don't see that. I don't have these conversations that often. And then what if you did have the most extreme variety of it and says, well, let me tell you about this race of people or this religion of people and you don't get it and that their beliefs are clearly bigoted. Do you need to hear them out as well and really empathize with them and take that scout mindset? No, and, that, and you're right. It's a lot easier to talk about this issue and be on one side of it than it is to uh, maybe actually practice it. Yeah, because if you start listening to somebody you're like, okay, well, you're clearly insane or so outside the scope of what I believe in my heart that I can't even listen to you. There's not many, it's one or the other, I feel like. It's extremes or it's like, okay, yeah, we're kind of on the same page. Like, I don't know. Well, that kind of leads a little bit into this next concept, which is called Operation Mindfuck, a conspiracy theory that can protect you from conspiracy theories. The operation is being conducted by persons unknown and is a plot to make you believe lies. Whenever you receive information, ask yourself, is this part of Operation Mindfuck? What'd you think of this one, Don? So you're supposed to listen to nothing and anybody tell you something is wrong? Is that what I'm getting here? I think the idea is you hear something and instead of just immediately believing it's correct, you should, you know, just, I guess, go do some research or think through it. Why is that? I mean, I was kind of thinking there needs to be a checklist with this one of when you hear something, you've got to at least ask the, the who, like who said this? Why are they saying this? When was this said? Uh, can this be replicated anywhere? And maybe just trying to keep you from, from going, you know, into some dark, dark conspiracy theories. I, I guess that's the, the, the uh, self-protection. That means you just stick with your own instincts and beliefs and you never change them. Yeah, maybe that's true. But Americans love conspiracy theories. I mean, we're still talking about JFK and people still love to wonder if we actually went to the moon or not, right? And there's a million other conspiracies out there. Why is it that, that people love them so much? Even some people that don't believe them love to think about them and at least entertain them. Is that just because they're entertaining and they're, or they're just, they're so impossible that you want to believe they maybe existed? Like, why do we love them so much? I think because we like the surprising. We like the, uh, well, everything you've taught was wrong. And here is the real truth. Like, oh, that's really surprising that my history teacher, my history books lied to me. And really JFK is still alive and living with Elvis. And <laughs> um, that's, 
you know, it, that's what we, it's surprising. It comes back to the other concept we are talking about earlier. At the same time, the power of ideas are really powerful and some ideas can get rolling and it do, they don't stop, right? I mean, you know, they can lead to revolutions and they can also lead to, to change or anger or happiness. I mean, you know, some people have thrown out that, that the, you know, the American Revolution was a big conspiracy by uh, the elite to try to cut off their debt that they owed various British businesses and stuff like that, right? And you look at, hey, only about a third of people were really into that revolution. And yet look how powerful that idea kind of rolled into until America was, uh, you know, its own nation. I don't know. I, the, the, it just reminds me that the power of ideas and that when a collective number of people can believe something, all of a sudden, whatever people do believe can become true, I guess, sometimes. Well, and there's that tipping point where at some point you just get enough people on board that they can, this can bridge into reality. And maybe you should be second guessing things. It's hard for me to say, don't, don't take in new ideas or don't believe new things that come to light or don't really comp contemplate them. That seems to be what I'm get taking from this. Right. At least slow down and don't just assume it's all true, right? Yeah, maybe that's a good point. Well, that kind of leads into the next one, which is called Hitchens Razor. What can be asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. If you make a claim, it's up to you to prove it, not to me to disprove it. What'd you think of that one? Well, that's a real hard one because um, you could say that uh, <laughs> you should tell me I should get the vaccine, but I, I don't need to get the vaccine because I'm fine already. Um, how do you prove to me that the vaccine will help me? I mean, it's nearly, it's hard to convince people of that. And so sometimes we need to just take people's word for it when they're experts, even if they don't have the evidence that I can fully, uh, fully understand. And so I really don't think this is apt at the moment. Yeah, I don't know. I was trying to think about this one in that I'd love to think that there was a time long ago when people made claims and then immediately proved them. But now I guess I feel like the burden of proof seems to be sometimes on the listener. And maybe that's how it's always been. I, I was having a hard time trying to think about that. And I guess, is it okay if you just say, hey, I saw it on TV. I saw it on the internet. And is that enough proof for people? Maybe. Maybe this is something I need to think about. I tell my students all the time in my class to read the book. It'll help them tremendously. That They'll do well in the class if they read the book. And maybe they're dismissing it because I haven't produced any evidence. Maybe I need to do a correlational study and say, those kids that read the book got A's, where those kids that didn't got C's. And here is the evidence. And then maybe they'll be more likely to read it. Also, when people make a claim, what's the level of burden of proof that we need, right? Uh, how many things should somebody bring with them if they're going to start making claims? I just thought this is one that's interesting, though, because I do think sometimes people are allowed to say, obviously, whatever they want. And often we do make unsubstantiated claims. And then we just kind of leave it on whoever listened to go and decide if that was true or not. And I don't know if that's an unfair burden or if that's just maybe how it's always been. Well, why even do the research? Because we could just torture the data if we had data. So we could just make up the data and just present whatever we want. And people can either listen or not. No, that's true. And uh, and they can go about their merry way. I, I'd be curious if somebody ever did a study about how many claims the average person listens to on a daily basis. Like, you know, they've done those studies where like the average child has watched, 
I don't know, like 10,000 commercials with a cartoon before they're 18. You know, they've, they've got that kind of study of on a daily basis, what people hear or see. I'd be curious if they took an average person and thought about all the headlines and things they hear at random. How many claims a day is somebody hearing? And then I guess of all those claims, how many of them do people actually remember? And then maybe it either changes their opinions or just gives them bad information that now they have. That actually could probably be done now because Google knows your IP address and what you've seen. And so you could do the research of what the consumers use and really probably come up with some real data. There's another study that somebody should go out and do for us. Yeah, get, the, get all that Google database and you can work through it. Next one, decision fatigue. The more decisions you make in a day, the worse your decisions get. So rid your life of trivial choices. Steve Jobs, Barack Obama, and Mark Zuckerberg had been known to wear only one or two suits to work so they don't have to choose each day. What do you think of that one? Uh, I know I read, watched a thing with Barack Obama and he was saying that he did not pick out his clothes when he was president. Somebody else picked out the clothes and they're always black or gray. There was no blue. And somebody else picked out his meals because he didn't want to have to think about that because the decisions he made in a day were important decisions. He wanted to each decision you make is worse, like diminishing marginal ability, one would say. And so you should make fewer decisions and really make them right. And um, I, I, I believe this one. If you, it is exhausting. If you try to make decisions all the time, if you go to a grocery store without a list and try to plan your menu for the week while you walk down the aisles and decide which different thing you want to buy, that's exhausting. If you've been to a new store you've never been before, if you're on vacation, you go to a grocery store and try to find everything, it's hard because it's hard to find everything. It's not the same brands. It's too many decisions. It's really exhausting. So I, I do believe in this. Oh, I'm a big believer in it. I, I've kind of remarked to myself that, I don't know, seven years ago or so, I just decided I'm going to wear khaki pants every day to work and a collared shirt. <laughs> And I just don't even have to think anymore in the morning and get stressed out by that. I also decided that like, I'm just gonna eat the same lunch I eat every day because then I don't have to like worry about what do I wanna eat today? My wife, my children, other people I know, like they generally are bummed out as they're leaving the house because of whatever they chose to wear or whatever they, they know they have for lunch that day. And I just think like, man, like that's a real high and low they gotta live. Then if they just kind of like already set their sights on, this is just what I do. And I don't know, again, life's a seven, right? If you just kind of know, like, this is what I'm doing today, doesn't it just make it easier than the, the, the highs and lows of disappointing yourself already? I have a different method of clothes, but basically I put them all in order on the rack and I pull them out in order from left to right so that I, and I know what pants go with what shirt because my wife tells me what matches. So I don't have to put what, I don't have to put much thought into it. I do different meals every day, but I don't know if that decision is one that is so much of a weight on you, or you're also missing out on the excitement. What if you're really looking forward to your lunch? What if you really like your outfit? What if that brings you some sort of joy or happiness? Aren't you missing, missing out on that? Definitely. I, I'm sure on some days you, you get that wonderful pizza lunch or something like that. And, and Hey, for a little bit longer, you're feeling great. And at the same time, I just feel bad on the days when you didn't get the lunch that you wanted, or you made a bad choice, or you're not happy with what you're wearing. I don't know. I, I guess maybe it all evens out in the end. That's very possible. But it does seem like it could be draining, especially if it's impacting how you're making other decisions. And that was the other part that I just thought was interesting is I'd love to talk to, I guess, our administrators 
even at a school level or just bosses in a, in a corporate level or, or political leaders. And I'd love to ask them, is there a point in the day where you've gotten to decision five or decision 10? And let's assume that almost every one of these decisions is gray and that there's no clear cut answer that where you just start to feel fatigue. And then does it impact the next five or 10 decisions that you have to make? I got to assume it does add up, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, well, at least in my classroom, I've pursued where I can make fewer decisions. So when kids ask to go to the bathroom, I pretty much always say yes. I might say like, hey, can you wait five minutes for the middle of something? If they say we're going to go like, okay, go. Like, I, I don't really care anymore. It's not a decision anymore. And so I can keep my decisions to, hey, can I retake this or can I redo that? Can you help me after school with tutoring? Like making harder decisions that impact more things. If I stay after school to help this kid, which I want to do, then I can't make it to my son's basketball game. So I have to make that tougher decision and say like, hey, sorry, I can't today, maybe tomorrow. And it opens up your mind to really deal, reckon with the decisions you have left. And I understand these aren't end of the world decisions, but these are decisions that you make. Never, I make nevertheless in the week, in the day. And we all pursue that. I think it's really hard for administrators, but they probably have a pre-established yes and no on everything that, or most things that they can just go to like, no, we don't do this. Yes, we do this. Like, haven't you heard that? We do, we do. Like that's a policy rather than decision. I feel like you could write a, a at least a short book uh, about what you just said there about as a classroom teacher about trying to even take certain decisions that you have to make all day and uh, simplifying them a little bit or trying to put more or more in the automatic category so that you can focus on the other ones because it is exhausting when you're dealing with 100 kids who are coming to you with all sorts of things <laughs> and something like the bathroom though can can add up you're right that's a really good point. Makes it pretty quick and easy. Then you can just say, right, it's a policy more than a uh, decision. Another study I would love to see somebody do is I'd love to see somebody like timestamp all the decisions they've made throughout a day, especially somebody who's in a, <laughs> well, in a position of leadership. It'd be really interesting to watch, I guess, like, hey, at 8.43, this decision was made. At, at 8.56, this decision was made. And I guess it'd be interesting just to look at the data over a short and long period of time to see did decisions get made more in haste Were they made less rationally than they were made earlier in the day? Or like, I don't know, then you could see how those decisions maybe played out over a longer period of time, which ones were good ones, which ones are bad ones. I do wonder if there's something to be said for that. Well, I think that's what experience is. Experience is a culmination of decisions and knowing the results of those decisions, which leads you to make the same or maybe a different decision in the past, in the future. So people have a lot of experience. We have a friend who is uh, running a large organization and he's talking to younger people and his experience is what guides their decisions. So he'll tell them like, oh, you did this. I understand what you're thinking, but note that this is likely the outcome and you might want to make a different decision this time. So his experience is just an amalgamation of all these decisions done over time and knowing if those were the right ones or the wrong ones. And hopefully the wrong ones were not ones that had negative career or net large negative benefits or negative costs, but it's, uh, it's something that you just accumulate. And that kind of leads to our last uh, concept for the day, cumulative culture. Humanity's success is not due to our individual IQs, but to our culture which stockpiles our best ideas for posterity, so they compound across generations. The ideas we adopt from society are often far older than us and far wiser. What'd you think of that one? 
Oh, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, the basic ideas that we've accumulated and realized, like don't eat raw meat, like wash your hands after you've cut up the chicken, the raw chicken, things like that are just like passed down, eventually accumulated and tremendously powerful. And those are refined from the ones where initially like after you kill the pig, cook it over a fire first bag. Like these are just all things that have slowly accumulated in that way. We're probably the smartest generation of people ever because we just learned from so many other mistakes by people earlier in our societies. Well, one of your favorite scientific revolution guys, uh, Sir Isaac Newton, you know, he had the very famous statement about we stand on the shoulders of giants and the ideas we have come from the past over just accumulations of centuries of knowledge of things that we're learning both through experience and through studies. This one makes a lot of sense to me, although I feel like sometimes we always want to discount the past and say, nah, those are all old ideas. And yet I feel like we have no sense of just how much creep, especially when it comes to culture, is within us, right? I mean, how much of our experience comes from our interactions with our parents when we were younger and how much was in our parents that came from their parents? There's so much implicit stuff, I think, that does get passed down to us that we don't even recognize, if you know what I'm saying. Absolutely. And it's just taken as procedural knowledge. And I mean, and and you could say, is this why there's such a debate over history, I guess, right now in our in our nation, everybody seems to want to argue about what actually happened in the past. And everybody seems to want to look to it to try to explain, no, this is who we were as a people. But yet, I don't know. uh, I mean, isn't what we are right now what we are as a people? And we still carry a lot of our burdens from the past with us. Well, yeah, the pat, the burdens, but also the benefits. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. I, I just, I think it's interesting. And I think sometimes this is that whole part of like, you know, yes, what you as an individual today achieve is, is because of your merits, but also you have to look at the backwards part of, well, how were you raised and and what kind of opportunities did your parents have? And I just think it's a real complicated picture that sometimes just we forget sometimes of where we are today is because of what has happened in the past. Absolutely. And it's hard to quantify where all those things came from, but they're all there. And are the parenting mistakes that our great, great grandparents made were hopefully mitigated by the decisions of our grandparents and our parents tried to mitigate those ones that they were dealt with as children. And we are trying to mitigate the ones that we suffered as children and kind of everybody do a little better. It's going to be hard for our kids because I think we're doing a fantastic job. I can't imagine we're making any mistakes now. None. Oh, you and I are perfect parents and stuff like that. It's interesting because I remember reading uh, just an essay about somebody trying to talk about the history of lawn maintenance. And why (laughs) is it that we go out and we like spend all these hours mowing our lawns and stuff like that. And if you trace it back over hundreds of years, what you find is that nobody mowed their lawn back then. Grass just grew, right? And it was only sort of this thing by like nobles and kings that would have their grounds around their huge palaces like mowed and kept at a very short height. But that it was an idea of showing one's wealth was, you know, how low they could keep their grass essentially. And the idea that that kind of kept moving through the centuries 
to at this point, uh, everybody in our nation seems to have to keep their lawn mowed tight and, and neat because there's sort of a weird cultural expectation that comes with that. But that the idea that it came from as like kind of an, as an aristocratic status statement hundreds of years ago, but yet we're still practicing that today, right? Wow. The fact that you've read up on the history of lawn maintenance is really staggering. I'm trying to take a scout mindset as I take this in. I hear this. I hear this, this <laughs> the societal requirement that we need to have short grass. I do a terrible job mowing my lawn. It's uh, I mow it every few weeks. I mow only the areas that grow because I have mostly shade. I don't care that much about it, but now I feel that I'm letting society down. Well, but I'm sure though that while maybe your lawn has its issues, I got to assume you and your wife have driven by somebody else's lawn. Maybe they've been on vacation, therefore it's grown a little bit, you know, high and you get, oh my God, their lawn looks like hell. What's going on with them, right? Yeah, my pet peeve is sticks on the lawn. If there's too many sticks on the lawn, it just looks like nobody lives there. That one bothers me. And that's my point is think about how culturally we respond just to looking at somebody's lawn with a judgment right? And where does that come from? It comes somewhere. And according to this historian, it comes from, you know, the sort of elitist aristocracy from hundreds of years ago. But we now have that like sort of embedded in us to judge people based upon what we see in their lawn. And then to make sure that we're out there taking care of it. In many ways, we are like the aristocracy of yore in that we have limitless entertainment at our fingertips. We all have indoor, we have fairly consistent heating for the most part and air conditioning in most places in America and for most people. And things are much better than it could have been as the life of the surf sleeping on a hay stuffed sack with our whole family. It's true. And in some of those things you've met, you're right. Like definitely we've got a lot of things that the aristocracy had. But I would argue like lawns are something people do judge each other on kind of fairly harshly behind their backs. I, I'm sure they do. I am not casting that judgment often and people may be judging me. I'm going to judge people on other things that I'll, uh, I'll keep to myself. And uh, shout out to my dad who uh, for over 50 years in Traverse City, Michigan, has always uh, kept a shoddily maintained lawn. He doesn't water it. It's got tons of yellow in July. He'll mow it occasionally, lots of weeds, even though everybody around him is mowing and keeping their lawn looking pristine. He has uh, managed to not get caught up in this uh, aristocratic game. That is interesting you say that. Uh, my mom is very budget-minded and is quick to cut any extra expense, but has paid for chem lawn for going on 30 years to have a weed-free lawn. And uh, that's, uh, that's an expense she's never willing to cut, even in the roughest of times. So perhaps you have a good point here. Oh, I've got $400 going out the door to, um, <laughs> to my lawn guy to keep feeding it. I do it myself. It's I don't do a great job, but I do it myself. But you're doing it, and that, that says something, I think. Tractor, tractor Supply sells the materials. It's a lot cheaper. I can show you how to do it, Zach. Nah, I'd like to just uh, outsource it there. Well, you're creating local jobs. Yeah, there you go. Well, Don, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure here. These are uh, just sort of 12 more interesting concepts. And uh, again, this is just a great article. And I, if nobody read it the first time, I highly recommend we'll, of course, post a link there. There's more that we haven't even discussed. And I just think they help you see the world differently and maybe help explain it a little bit. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. All right. Thanks, Don. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.